Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. Edward, where are you guys going? Well, I'm going to make a film in Europe, so um, we're going to Greece. Greece and uh, later to uh, Serbia. Mm. My son's very, he's eight, he's very into maps right now and where things are and countries and capitals and rivers and all of it. And I, we said, um, we're going to go to do this film in Greece and in Serbia and everything. And he went, I'm excited for the Greece part, but I've read a lot about Siberia and I'm not going there. <laughs> I said, no, not Siberia. <laughs> Serbia. Serbia. <laughs> that is a keeper yeah. for the family records. Yeah. I've been really into maps too. I actually just made this set that the whole, it's like a jacket and pants and the whole thing is a world map. Mm. <laughs> but it's so cool how they do like map designers do the colors and like what they choose and the fonts. Yeah. And whether they're political maps or they, right. you know, topographical maps, are they... I wrote this um, thing about the Lewis and Clark expedition, and Clark was this incredible cartographer. He, the maps he made of their journey up the Missouri River and west across and down to the Pacific, it's kind of staggering to imagine that a person can orient themselves in a way that they could like render that accurately. Yeah. I mean, they were doing that between 1803 and 1806, so a little over 200 years ago. Yeah, and. Now, like we just, on our phone that's in our pocket, we have the computing power to open up Google Earth, zoom in on the (laughs) routes that they followed, look at it, you know, your capacity to orient yourself in physical space and in a sense of where you are on the planet or anything, it's so, it's almost infinite now. And like 200 years is not that many generations. Yeah. And then I think technology is accelerating faster. And so what it also means that we can't even fantasize or imagine what will be ahead. Yeah, of us. in a, in a hundred years, even. Yeah. Yeah. And what's unexplored, because you know we can't create new borders. Yeah, I find that urge to push the boundary or the envelope of our horizons out again is it does have profundity. It's not. I don't think it's purely a quixotic kind of idea. Hmm. Do you have like a um? a pull towards geographical areas, like over time, are you drawn to certain places on the planet? Yeah. When I was young, I got this really intense affinity for Japanese culture and history and language. And I knew I needed to go there when I was like 13 years old. And I don't, I have no idea why. I mean, I I do remember my mother like loved Richard Chamberlain and watched like, you know, (laughs) The Thornbirds and then Shogun, right? And then I was I was much too young to read James Clavell's Shogun, but I did. And it kind of put the zap on my head. But but I did feel I did feel this intense pull toward that part of the world in that period in my life. And then it, it definitely ebbs and flows. I've had draws toward other mm. other places too. What about, have you? Um well, first, I'd say when I was young, like you, I was drawn to places uh, that I was thinking about two things. Where is it sunny? Because I grew up in Chicago. And also, where do they serve carbohydrates? Because my mom was in the ballet. <laughs> so that, that was kind of my goal. But 
then actually any travels I did thereafter came because of dreams telling me I'd live there. So I was very backwards. Mm. But I will say after the dream, it was irresistible. Like I, I was trying to think, how am I going to get there? What's going to take me there? What am I going to do when I get there? But I think every time I go to a place, and actually the three of us have that in common. Uh, we've done a, a fair amount of travel and spent time in places, not just went through them. I think something changes in you. I don't know if you guys agree, but I feel like when I go to a place, there's both a marvel, like a wonderment, but, and a familiarity. Like, oh, I am here. Does that happen to you? I've had both. I've had a feeling of intense familiarity and that feeling like Isaac Dennison in It's Either in Out of Africa or Shadows on the Grass. She talks about that when she got to Africa, she said, you have the sensation of, yes, he, here I am where I am supposed to be. And I, I do find there, there's some really deep intrinsic, like a DNA memory of having come from that place, like a feeling of recognition or of just rightness to being amidst all of that, even though it's obviously, you know, for us, it's very exotic. But I've also definitely gone places where I felt alien, not familiar, like all my senses were up and not, not on alert in a danger sense, but where I, or, I mean, I've traveled, a, you know, a lot, yes. relatively speaking, and been lucky that way. And I've had family living abroad and spent lots of time in places like China or Indonesia or Africa or whatever. And but I like I just a couple of years ago I went on a work related thing I I went to La Paz Bolivia, and you know and this was not that long ago so I got to La Paz and I felt like I had arrived in some outer world like a, another planet. Wow. La Paz is situated, it's at like twelve thousand feet and you arrive on this the this high desert plain this really high plain 13 14000 feet and then you drive along this high escarpment and drop down into la paz through these erosion gullies it's like the whole city feels like it's it's this thing that's risen up in these gullies on the moon or something mm. it's really wild it just had a i felt like most of what's in our daily lives that we're listening to and hearing is signal and and that it wasn't present there. It was, it was like nobody was paying attention. No one was tuned in in any way to our politics, our movies, our music. Like nobody was, you know, I was just like, oh, the world is really big and all these things we occupy ourselves with God. and put so much intensity into and so much conviction that it matters. And this vast city of millions and millions of people. And I had no sensation that, their radio was tuned into our frequency on any level. I was like, wow, this is making me feel really nice and appropriately small, you know? Yeah, that's, it's been such a long time since that's happened for me. Like, I remember the first time I went to China, it was like in the 90s, I went to teach English there randomly. And it was like this small village. And I remember it was the first time I had ever been anywhere where there was no reference point for anything. Mm -hmm culturally speaking, anything, like none of the cues, language-wise, food-wise, nothing. But as I've traveled more and more through the years, it just feels like things have become so westernized. Like even that tiny village that I was in in the 90s now is like, there's a McDonald's there. And, you know, it's changed yeah. so dramatically. Or 
when I was younger, I'd go to Europe and it was so cool because I would shop and you'd buy things there that you couldn't find here. Right. And now it's like the same companies and the same kind of thing. So it's kind of cool to hear that there are still <laughs> places on the earth where... It's so mysterious to why that place, why La Paz, like why those areas are, even though sometimes they are surrounded by places that are, have longstanding cultures, why were they left out? I felt that way in Lesotho. Like you have Botswana, South Africa, Mozambique, Swaziland, you've got all these beautiful countries, Zimbabwe surrounding. And then here in Lesotho, and people have to ride horseback to get to certain regions of the country because there's no roads. And you just go, what happened? What happened to Einstein's theory of simultaneity? Did it not percolate here too? And people have a sense of it. It's such a mystery. Yeah. Well, Julie made an observation about you, Edward, that I really, I've been thinking about a lot because it's so true. And sometimes when you have a feeling about someone or there is like a sense or an aura about somebody and then somebody articulates one small aspect of it, <laughs> I just love putting words to it. But um, she said that you have this humility that comes from curiosity, like this endless curiosity. And I've just been thinking about that so much because I would have never associated humility with curiosity, but after you did, I just love that so much because it's true, like the more curious, like genuinely curious you are about things, you're always truly in the position of being a student. And it's humbling when you're a student always, when you you never feel like you've conquered anything. I also think that it kind of makes you awake in a in a rare way that we don't really see often. So I just wanted to know if you were aware of that consciously and have you always been like that? Uh, I, I can't self-reflect on it, but I think that curiosity and the, the, the perpetual student, like the idea of this being in a state of perpetual learning, bringing a groundedness or a perspective that keeps one's ego in check is very well observed. And I think the idea, you know, e people talk about ego in kind of the pop culture sense, always egotistical, but the, e the idea of ego, the idea of the need, the part of the self that is focusing on the self and for whatever reason in our monkey brains narratively needs, wants to, there's at some part of us has this drive toward significance around our narrative we want we I, I think it's because on some in some sense within a species that created you know survival advantage through society through socialization social collateral means something obviously and therefore we pay attention to what others how they're looking at us how they're thinking of us it's a it's a byproduct of being a species that got advantage through socializing and through and through teaming up together. But the, the downside is we have this ego that wants, it's not even just our desires, we, ca we care about what others think about us on some level. There's a part of us that fights to want to be important. That can lead to some things that are productive, that are contributive, that are, if it's marshaled in the right way, 
it that mm. drive to create or the drive to to say something or to uh, contribute an idea a lot of the greatest of what people do rises up out of ego in some dimension but like anything taken to excess it becomes like a terrible weakness you know like the obsession with yourself the obsession with the fantasy that your individual life matters or registers overly and not having that humility. So to me, the things that bring you back down to earth in terms of where you are amongst other people, those are really, the older I get, the more I, the more healthy and necessary I think those things are. And I, for me, for sure, I mean, surfing does that for me because it's something I came to later in life and I love and almost like lionize people who are good at it, but I'm, you know, and I'm okay at it, but but it humbles, basically it humbles me every single time I do it. I wanna be better than I am. Like I, I got to surf the other day with Gabriel um, Medina, who's the current- Oh my gosh. He's the current thing. And I was watching him and just felt, I felt like I had a, a, a physical disability. <laughs> uh, I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, why am I such a, an yeah. awkward, stiff, weak, like <laughs> specimen, you know? And those things are great. I think those experiences, um, New learning is just such a great reset. Wow. Edward, I'm dying to ask you this question, though, because, um, Smishy, thanks for giving away my thoughts about Edward. <laughs> but I, it's perfect, really, because I notice that when you talk to people or when you're with a group of people or even when I saw you in the street um, when I was visiting, it's your radar is finely tuned. So... Even if you are surfing like for the first time with someone who is like an expert in their field, you're still taking in data. You're not just being like, oh, wow, why am I here? But instead, you're aligning with something in your awareness. Are you aware of that? Sometimes, um, you know, it's like this tension in everybody. I think there's, it's almost like, how do you maintain healthy detachment in other words, sometimes everybody needs to or benefits from turning off the observant brain, right? Because the, the, the same brain that you're saying is taking in data, learning, absorbing, all of that, that's the same brain that won't shut up in your quiet moment that is, that is processing, that is imagining forward, reviewing the past, do, you know, plaguing you with thought in a lot of ways at times when sometimes you need to just be present and be quiet, right? And it's like the balance between engagement and absorption and as you said, uh, attention, let's call it like the state of attention has real value. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you really wanna be able sometimes to do the exact opposite and just be in a moment without your brain hurling you forward and backward and analyzing and doing all these things. And I like, I find that's the sort of the life challenge of the moment because the, the, the even deeper version is kind of what we're talking about. It's like caring and not caring at the same time. It's thinking what you're doing is important and knowing that it's not important at the same time. You really have to hold both those ideas Absolutely. in you at the same time. And that's to me what's interesting about meditation. It's interesting about things like surfing or anything that takes you out of yourself because it is a practice. 
the idea that the mind is a muscle that needs the exercise, that you have to build a capacity in it to stop thinking, to focus and not multitask and just do one thing. And when you don't do it, your brain goes pretty lazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's one of the weirdest things to me about hum- just like, why do we have, we know what's good for us to eat and what's not good for us to eat. And we know it has addictive things and neurochemical reward systems that make us want it more, but still we know, and yet we do a lot of things that we know aren't good for us. We know how we want to spend our time. We know we'd rather read than watch certain kind of junk food content, but we do anyway. And it's like, why, you know, why? What's the, what's the entropy or the- Swishy, why? What in us wants to be lazy and yeah. not do the thing that's better for us to do? <laughs> First of all, what I love is what you were just sharing, that dynamic, which is so big. You just dropped several gems right out of your mouth at the same time. But you know what I love? You guys, I love when, Edward, your version of that, of the awareness place, whether you get there from meditation or you allow yourself to be in the mean, you know, so that you're not in your monkey brain, but you're also not zoned out, but you're here. And then that allows you to wake up to an opportunity that you're drawn to. Like you could hear about something or read a book or a project or just any number of things and it catches you. That's what fascinates me about the human bridge because you do that. And then I see Melody do that and you guys could be in the exact same place, but you will draw different things from that situation because of your design. But when you don't find any place to engage that real, the part of you where it's effortless, where it's not work to stay in that zone, then you're going to eat junk. You're going to binge watch. You're going to do whatever you have to do to get your comfort back until you can reset. So you can also be here for a moment because it's, I think it's rugged. You know, life is rugged just being here even just sitting still in a room with the world spinning whirly-twirly outside. So I think we just have to do it. But I love that you could be in the exact same situation, completely in your element, and you are going to be drawn to one thing and she's going to be drawn to another. Melody, do you find, like, your work's creative. Do you find over time, as you've experienced success within it or the even just through the work you've done, the invitation or the opportunity to do more, have you hit a point in sort of the bell curve of it where what comes with that is making it harder to do the work the way you used to do it? Yes. But I think that's where the practice part of getting out of your brain, well, when you were talking, it made me think of how we're such concrete beings, you know, we're bound to this earth, you know, we we have to abide by the laws of this planet, like gravity. But then at the same time, we're also this other sort of essence that there's more to me than that, that's confined to this body. So it's like, how do I, what are the things that I do that get me out of my brain 
you know, like when I work with my hands, it's the most effective thing. Like I just started learning how to do pottery. So I've been playing with clay and um, it's like you and surfing. Like I'm so frustrated because I see the wheel, I see the clay. I'm like, I should be able to do this. I'm like ready for my show next week. And and then I come out of class making something that like a kindergartner probably yeah. could have done a better job at. But I think it's the balance for me of not getting caught up in the mirage of what's important here and continually going back in myself of what's important in me. Like, why am I here why am I truly here? And then I think that that affects, you know, how difficult or how hard that bell curve is that you're talking about is how in myself I'm able to stay or how many resources I'm able to grow upon, like my wealth, so to speak, of like how many different types of processes I can have that avoid me from being caught up in those things that make it difficult. Because it's really mental, you know, it's such a mental thing for me. So if I could keep my mind and my spirit in a good place, then I feel like that stuff is just like foam in the ocean. Like mm-hmm. I can just sort of sift through it way easier. I have more, more process to be able to just be like, okay, I know what this is. I know it's coming. And I also know where to go to get more information about my true self Mm. to keep me planted in this place. Yeah, I think that idea of um, that the value of absorbing people's wisdom about mental science and the way the brain works and the functions of it that create, let's call it false thought or false emotion, really, Mm -hmm. in you. Like the biggest value of it is you hit it when you said, I know what that is. Mm-hmm. The ability to like stand to the left of yourself and mm-hmm. say, this is a state that I've seen come over me before. I know mm-hmm. the state. I don't love the state, but I know what it is. And I know what will get me beyond it, you know? Or I know also that it doesn't have consequence. It doesn't have the consequence it feels like it does, you know? Yeah. And in a weird way, I mean, it's horrible to say, but I think, I think when people go through deaths that are shocking, lose people or go through any form of cataclysm where you go, oh, this is an authentic consequence cataclysm. This is real, final, whatever it is. I find too that that over time has dialed the volume down a little bit on some of those friction states that you get in or emotional when you go on tilt emotionally or stress-wise or whatever, because you it's like when you've been up and into the vibratory state of something really, truly mm. profound and fundamental happening, you go, oh, this is not that. Yeah. And I'm not in a hospital with a loved one dying. I'm not, yeah. you know, this is not crisis. Like if you go to, if experiencing crisis definitely, I think, helps go, why would I create a self-induced fake crisis? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is things, but, but um, I mean, I think one of the things that's, really wild too, is the idea that you can get into like flow state in different phases of your life and you think, oh great, like I figured this out. But then you get older, (laughs) it's like you get older, (laughs) you get older and things change a lot. And you're sort of going, ah, I had it for a second there. What happened? Why did I let it go? Why did I change anything? You know what I mean? What that's interesting too. I mean, you really have to sort of recultivate it. I think awareness is infinite. I'm sorry, 
Smishy, I keep bringing up this example so many times because it really just fascinates me. But um, Julie was saying she observed this thing in the human body where the pancreas is responsible for processing all sweet things that go through your body. So sugars, but it's, it's also really cool because the pancreas is responsible for producing, it's the only organ that produces hormones and enzymes, which mm. is interesting. But um, one of the things that she observed through her practice is that not only does the pancreas process sweet things, but also sweet experiences. So when somebody tells you like, hey, Edward, you're really good at this, or when they tell you that they love you, your body creates chemistry. It's like a reaction, right? And it's got to get processed through somewhere and it processes through your pancreas. And so Julie was saying that she noticed that people that have a lot of sweetness in their life don't crave actual sweets as much. And people that are that don't have a lot of sweetness crave more sweets and actually can't handle it as well as people that don't, right? Mm-hmm. That brought up such a huge awareness for me. And it was like you saying, like being able to step to the left of something yeah. because the next time that happened for me where I was like really craving sweets and I was like, oh, but it's so bad for me. I don't want to. In that moment, I was like, wait, I know I want this chocolate bar, but what is it? Do I really want the chocolate bar or am I actually craving sweetness, like a sweet experience? And then it was so empowering in that moment because then you can make a, a really great decision about what's actually happening. And then you can also like, for me, I was like, God, my body is so brilliant that it needs this sweetness. And it's just trying to compensate by having this chocolate bar. And then it feels so different interacting with the chocolate bar and with sweet things. And that's like this overall thing that's so empowering. And I feel like when you have that sort of like curiosity and you're constantly questing, it takes you to these places. And as you get older, I feel like it does get more challenging because you're like, wait, but I figured it out. The pancreas processes sugar. And then the next iteration of that happens and you're like, fuck again. Like I thought I did the work. Well, yeah, you're, see, you're making me feel like I felt watching Gabrielle Medina surf because (laughs) you're very, you're obviously more evolved than I am because I still have a terrible sweet tooth, like (laughs) terrible. I'm going to try to say to myself that my pancreas is speaking to me (laughs) and that I actually just want a nice experience because like I've said before, I, I get a fiendish, it's not just a stress release. I just like, I have a lot of sweetness in my life, a lot of good things, a lot of things I'm very happy about, but I, I, I am at war with, with sugar. It's profound. It's a profound thing, sugar, that substance. I it's mean, gnarly. Yeah, it's no joke. Do you know, you guys, uh, if you were like in a uh, place where you didn't have medical help or support and you had a cut that got infected, do you know if you mix sugar with water, and put it in a paste around the cut. All the bacteria will kill itself, leave the body (laughs) to be exposed to air, its mortal enemy to get to the sugar. I mean, sugar is a very wicked big thing. And so of course, that's why, you know, no judgment wherever anybody goes, uh, when you have to, you have to. 
But I also think that does make you ponder about everything else that's just like it. And as the ante gets upped in life, which is the mystery of life, the more experience you have, like even Edward, you were talking about the great equalizer about anything you're dealing with in life, which is if you've been through a real trauma or a tragedy, nothing is important after that. And yet not all deaths are equal. I've endured many deaths and every time I thought that I would do better at it and I didn't. This is completely different. I never experienced that loss. And I think that's true about everything. When you were talking about the bell curve for Melody, like I think absolutely when the ante is upped, we bring our tools, our skills, our gifts, everything we've been practicing in our practice. Like even I bet surfing is like your practice when you're not on a board. Like I bet there's things that come to you about surfing and you could be driving or you can be walking, or you could be dealing with some other unknown. What's curious to me is like, what's your GPS? What's the thing you trust? What's that internal GPS? So when you're in the unknown and everything has gone into the unknown, what do you draw on in that moment? Yeah, I think those are, um, you're hitting it to me, what is the really profound challenge because there's certain, someone I know is going through a, a really, really challenging relationship dissolution and fight over children, you know, the the worst. And she's has an incredible yoga practice, teaches it, really is like a kind of a guru figure or a beloved teacher figure to many other people, Mm -hmm. right? But what's going on right now is like, it's a profound, those are the moments where it's, you find out if your practice is anything other than, you know, a glorified exercise class, Mm -hmm. or if you can actually go to it Mm. for stability, sustenance, resolution, you know, does it actually anchor you when the shit really hits the fan emotionally? You know what I mean? Because we're in such a wild moment where, I mean, I know you guys talk about the butterfly effect, but it's like, if you think about like, Again, I, I think these timelines are wild, but you know, if you go back to like the early '60s, right, and you have people like Timothy Snyder and soon Timothy, you, you have kind of this like beat generation Ginsburg here in this country that's just mm-hmm. starting to take a look at Eastern mysticism, right? We're talking a blink ago, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, we're talking the idea that in the United States of America in 1957 that people would be talking in this country fluidly and naturally and organically about the number of ideas that we're talking about that come from the thought sciences that come from Tibet and India, Hinduism, yogic practice, all of it. It's just like the speed with which those ideas Mm. penetrated and permeated Mm. into our culture. It's actually mind boggling. And you think, I mean, there's the butterfly effect part of it, just that some people went over there, just a few people went there and came back or not even maybe with the intent to become, you know, an amplifier of these thoughts or ideas or anything, but they ended up becoming the gateway through which like this global, you know, there's, there's yoga studios everywhere in the world now, like everywhere. 
And that's not like hundreds of years of evolution. That really has happened like in the last 30 years. It's in our <laughs> yeah. adult lives. I mean, when we were kids, no. we didn't know anybody who did yoga, not one person. Now, like everybody's doing this thing. And I think that so true. in addition to just sort of that idea of things that are taking place somewhere, you know, hundreds of years of practice and thought science and cultural things. And it sat there sort of contained for a long time. And then it was like, wham. And this is pre-internet, pre, mm -hmm. you know, that didn't happen as a, that's amazing to me too. It didn't happen at all as a function of our internet revolution. It really led that. And it's something that sits alongside like your idea of the butterfly effect, really adjacent and somehow interactive with it is like that whole idea that ideas themselves, memes, you know, if you want to call it that, ideas exist mm. in their own Darwinian struggle. Like not just we as biological beings, like life on earth that's been shaped by natural selection and competition. This idea that ideas are doing the same thing all the time, mm. that once they are birthed, they exist. And if they have characteristics that confer advantage on us, they grow and gain in power and gain things. And then, and then you get into these great meme struggles of like communism versus capitalism, and they resolve themselves over time, trickle down economics versus social, you know, they do actually compete and reveal themselves and resolve over time. But this idea, uh, even the idea of mental practice or the idea of cultivating awareness. We say these things so fluidly now, but that's a function of like these ideas sat in certain parts of the world for a long, long, long time, suddenly found a certain little person, you know, one interaction between someone from the West and someone in India or something. And suddenly that idea is out of the box. And now in this really short order, it's gone mm -hmm. around the world and it had a strength to it. That's the point is like, people are getting something out of them. They would die if if people weren't getting something from them, mm. they would go away. That because and also by the way, there are lots of things that we see faddishly spring up. And after a while, you go, God, remember when we were all talking about X, Y, and Z? That's but yeah, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't take. Wait, but you didn't answer the question. <laughs> what do I go to? <laughs> um, I have a hodgepodge of practices, if you want to call. It. I mean, I have my release valves or my meditations, I, I I can't say that I'm in a place where there's one thing that I know I can turn to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do think when you have kids like that in itself becomes a different form of your baseline changes in terms of totally. what you think matters, why you're doing what you're doing, the degree to which you care about self diminishes in a good way. You yes. become secondary. In your own mind, you become, I, I guess not everybody goes through this, but it tends to dial down a lot of other things. Because out of necessity. So they get unpacked yes. because they are reliant on you. And it's not a philosophy where you're like, my kids need me. You know your kids need you. Yeah. And there isn't anyone else who can fill that role. But I'm also lucky. They, they're, for me, it's a positive thing. But I also, you have to have enough self-awareness to go, oh, this isn't because I'm wise or profound or this is intrinsic to the love of children. Because if I'd had kids when I was 19 years old, I'd have had a very different relationship <laughs> with that experience than having them at the time in my life. I was ready. 
financially capable. I mean, I have the privilege of being able to have my kids represent nothing but a positive in my life. Like there are lots of people for whom having kids is quite frankly, as much stress as love. It just, it is. And for whom they're, the person can't help it where they're coming to life, they, they, they're at odds with what it demands. What's demanded by it creates a negative friction for them or a sense of responsibility that's not positive. So you can, uh, you know, I'm saying in answer to your question, for me, that's a positive grounding thing. What about you, Sushi? What brings you back? What brings me back to myself? My kids do that for her too, weirdly. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I know about roller, roller skating with his kids. Yeah, they're Just blown away by Melody's roller skating. Get me right back in there. So am I. We're forming up kind of like like one of those Atlanta roller rink crews. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, I'm working on the custom jackets. Aww. Oh, that'd be dope. Yeah. I'm going to have to get out my blades just to make sure I get a jacket. <laughs> well, Sushi, should we ask Edward that like million dollar question? Because Edward, at the end, we started asking this one question, which is what did you think or hope you'd see in life that you have not seen yet and you wish that was a reality? It's funny. I do talk about my son about this. I would really like to be alive when we confirm the presence of life elsewhere. Hmm. I know people who have had really deep, profound sense of connection to a loved one who has passed away, right? Mm-hmm. I, I haven't had that. Of, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. I think, oh, it'd be so great to get some sort of a sense of connection or communication that that gives you. But I, I do think it'd be amazing to to see that happen, to see that moment when we confirm. to be, yeah, when we confirm it. I mean, I mean, it'd be really awesome if like these things, these Navy pilots have been seeing out over the ocean west of San Diego, like revealed themselves to us. But, um, but it's really funny. I was, my son is eight and I was saying, um, gosh, I hope we're alive together when we find out that that's, that that's, and he goes, oh, oh, there is. <laughs> and I said, what? And I, he said, there is life in lots of other places. And I was having one of those moments like, oh my God, is this like when your child says, you know, I remember God and all these things. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, I saw it on my Magic Bus episode. <laughs> like, this is cartoon he watches. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was saying, well, as long as like the story bots on Netflix have confirmed it. I'm- yeah. I mean, I think as a species, we would have to be so egotistical to not think that there's this huge grand universe and that there isn't like we're the center of it (laughs) yeah i mean i imagine like when we talk about things shifting really fast i i have a pretty strong conviction that issues of tribalism i mean it'll be with us for a while it'll 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 Mm -hmm. suck and it'll there'll be violence and those things but if you think about it like the world now is truly too small yes we're merging into what we already are which is one people indistinguishable and i think it'll end up seeming like the blink of an eye that this moment of tribalism and distinction mm-hmm. on superficial basis lasted. It, I think it'll it'll evaporate. I agree. We're already experiencing economically the global village. So <laughs> no one's going to go backwards. We can't unsee what we've seen together. You guys, 
Um, Edward, thank you so much for, uh, we know you were so busy preparing with your own work, but thank you so much for visiting us on the podcast. It's really just so great to have a conversation with you. Yeah, it's a good time to mentally change gears, you know? Yeah, get a little break from the kids. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Edward, I can't wait to catch up next time. Yeah, see you soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time.